Hi, welcome to episode six of Crime Historian, the podcast. I'm your host, Ashley, teacher by day, true crime nerd by night. Um, It's been a while since our last episode, and um, at that uh, end of that last episode, I think I promised you that I would start working on the podcast again soon. And as always, life kind of creeps up and gets in the way. I will say I have had this story sitting here in my Google Docs for quite a while. And um, the, just the, the heinousness of the story I'm going to tell you today, it, it's just, it's a lot. And it's one of those that I've been wanting uh, to talk about, but uh, it's hard. you got to take breaks from it and, you know, come back to it later. So um, without further ado, uh, just let me remind you. It should go without saying, but the podcast is not safe for children to listen to. So like I said, I've been wanting to tell you the story for years, but there is something about it that just kind of makes me sick every time I get too deep. At first, I thought it was because it happened in my hometown. Then I thought maybe it's because the victims are so young. But I think that what it really is, is that the victims were so close to their destination and they never made it. And I think that's a previously unvocalized fear of mine. So I'm going to take you back again to my hometown of Louisville, Kentucky, or Louisville to some. As I've mentioned before, I was born there, grew up in the suburbs, and I actually just got back uh, from a visit there. And like a good little historian, I'm going to take you back a little bit. Uh, I first learned of this story from my dad several years ago. I'm not even sure what we were discussing when this came up, but I remember being very interested in the story and pushing him for more details. When I came home to look it up for myself, I was horrified. So I'm going to start off with our two victims. Scott Christopher Nelson was born on January 8th, 1967. He lived in a cul-de-sac near Bellarmine University, which is a Catholic university in Louisville. He's one of our victims, as I said, and he was survived by his parents and his sister. Richard David Stevenson was born on July 5th, 1967. He lived near Hikes Point in the Oxmoor area. He is also survived by his parents and a sister and a brother. The areas that our victims are from are not generally considered bad parts of town. In fact, the boys' friends, um, I'm not sure exactly how close of friends they were, but they were friends. They were both enrolled as juniors at Trinity High School, an all-boys college prep school. Um, It's a pretty uh, well-known school in Louisville. And each of their commutes were less than 10 minutes. So uh, these days, Trinity is surrounded by a Panera, a White Castle, a Burger King, a Walmart, um, a trendy like Cuban-Mexican fusion restaurant. And um, Trinity historically has one of the highest rated football programs in the state. So um, they're pretty well known for their football. But our story doesn't take place today because the podcast is called Crime Historian. Um, It takes place back in September of 1984, which was an election year. So at this time, it had been four years since the Louisville Cardinals had won their first NCAA men's basketball championship, and it would be two more years until they would win it again. Um, That's when Denny Crum was the coach. Uh, September 29th, 1984 was a Saturday. The average temperature that day was 50 degrees, so it was a crisp fall day. Let's Go Crazy by Prince and the Revolution was the number one song that week on Casey Kasem's uh, Top 40 Countdown. I'm just trying to kind of set the stage for you so you can get an idea of exactly uh, what it was like in 1984 if you've uh, never been there. The 17-year-old boys, 
Richard and Scott were driving to a football game between Trinity and DuPont Manual at DuPont Stadium off of East Barnett Avenue when they got lost. So obviously before the era of GPS, um, and they stopped at a Moby Dick restaurant to ask for directions. Moby Dick is a fish place that's local to Louisville. Um, that's pretty good, or it used to be. I haven't been in a while, but this particular location was the one at Logan and Oak Street. And while they likely didn't know it, when they stopped for directions, they were only 1.2 miles from the football stadium that they were on their way to at the time. So they were less than a five-minute drive away. So um, anyway, they're on their way to a Saturday night football game. And um, it was here at the Moby Dick restaurant where they met Victor Taylor and his cousin, George Wade. And Victor and George um, told Richard and Scott that they would take them to the stadium if they could catch a ride with them. So um, they hop into the back of the car. And instead of leading them to the football stadium, Victor and George led Richard and Scott about a mile away to a vacant lot. Now, the vacant lot was right behind a football stadium, but not the one they were headed to. Um, they were headed to DuPont's football stadium, but the men, um, Victor and George, took them to a vacant lot behind the Louisville Mail High School football stadium on Ardella Court. And if you know anything about Louisville, you'll know that Mail High School has since moved from this location. But back in 1984, it was right there on South Brook Street, backing up to Ardella, which is now a residential area. So Victor and George then forced Richard and Scott to take off their clothes and give them their personal property, which I'm assuming uh, meant their wallets and anything else of value. And they were then gagged and bound. And Victor Taylor sexually assaulted one of the boys, um, but no source says which one, and that's probably for the better. And um, then the boys were shot in the back of the head. A relative of um, George Wade's actually ended up reporting him to the police because George had given him a Trinity High School jacket. And then once um, George had been reported to the police, he... Um, ratted out his friend Victor or his cousin rather Victor and a, upon a police search there were many personal items found that belonged to Scott and Richard in Victor Taylor's mother's home so in Louisville uh, the murders were reported on extensively obviously and the Courier Journal uh, Louisville's local paper wrote a lot about the murders I wouldn't uh, normally read an entire article out loud um, but I think to grasp the like horror and shock of the situation, it's necessary to quote the sources directly. So I am going to read you a lengthy excerpt um, straight from the Courier Journal. All right, so this article was published on October 1st, 1984, and it was written by Hunt Helm. It's titled, Two High School Boys Found Fatally Shot in Downtown Lot. Louisville homicide detectives working around the clock had no motive and no suspect late last night in the fatal shooting of two teenage boys both juniors at Trinity High School, whose bound bodies were found before dawn yesterday in a vacant lot just east of downtown. Scott Christopher Nelson and Richard David Stevenson were found by a beat officer in a deserted area off Floyd Street, far from the East End homes they had left, apparently for a high school football game. Both boys were 17 years old, 
and each was shot through the head at close range with a medium caliber weapon, according to Dr. George Nichols, the state medical examiner who performed autopsies yesterday at Humana Hospital University. Detective Michael Dossett said that every member of the homicide unit has been devoting full-time coverage to this investigation. But he said that police have been unable to determine where the boys were between 8 p.m. Saturday, when they left home from Manuel Stadium, and 3.05 a.m. yesterday, when their bodies were discovered. You think you've seen it all, and seen it many times over, said Sergeant Carl Yates, a spokesman for the Louisville Police. And then you see this. When it comes to young people lying in the woods in the middle of the night like that, well, I just can't describe the mood of the officers at the scene. It makes us ask the same question anyone else would ask. Who could do such a thing? We'll have to find the answer. A mass at the school last night was dedicated to the boy's memory. And Trinity Principal Peter Flagg said he would make a statement to the students during their homeroom classes this morning. I don't know what I will say. It leaves you numb. It leaves you outraged. It leaves you sick. Officer Melvin Allen was patrolling the 300 block of Ardella Court, an alley off Floyd between Kentucky and Breckenridge Streets, when he saw an empty blue Datsun parked in a vacant lot, its rear end protruding into the alley. This is a deserted pocket of the city where buildings have been boarded up and abandoned. The lot is overgrown with weeds and strewn with rocks and broken glass. The car did not fit the neighborhood, so Allen radioed the license number to a police dispatcher to see if it was stolen, Yates said. It wasn't and Allen called for another officer, then began searching the lot on foot. So um, that was one article from the Courier-Journal um, the day after they were discovered, and right next to it is another article titled, A Trinity Family Gathers in Grief to Offer Prayer. And this is the article um, that got me choked up a little bit, just uh, visualizing a mass amount of just mourners um, gathered the way that they were in being a high school teacher myself um, uh, the idea of, of losing a student let alone two while you're teaching is uh, is enough to to make you feel some some deep empathy for these students and uh, their families so that particular um, article um, it said 200 Trinity students, friends, faculty, and alumni crowded into their small chapel at the high school um, for the mass that celebrated there every Sunday night. And the school's chaplain uh, said that was 50 more students than who usually came uh, because the, of course, the, the mass that was held in uh, memory of Richard and Scott. Um, the chapel actually has no chairs or pews, according to this article, and so this visual is kind of what got me. Um, the worshipers, it says, many wearing Trinity jackets or sweatshirts sat on the green carpeted floor. Some sat silently, others chatted in low voices while they waited for the chaplain to begin the service, and many sat in pairs. Um, perhaps a third of those who had come to the chapel of the all-boys school were girls and friends of the family. And it said as more worshipers arrived, the others scooted nearer and nearer the altar until the whole floor was filled and some were standing against the walls. Uh, it also goes on to say the room fell silent when the chaplain draped a green stole over his shoulder and uh, turned to face the mostly high school age congregation and addressed them. And um, I, I just, I, I think about uh, students gathered like that 
um, in solidarity to not just pay their respects, but to mourn uh, their friends and their, you know, classmates. And uh, a lot of times it's just, it's so shocking, something like this, that it could happen to someone in your community um, and then happens to someone in your school. It's very jarring, I imagine. So a week after the murders, um, uh, life in Louisville has uh, somewhat gone back to normal. Uh, Ronald Reagan came to town to debate uh, Walter Mondale at the Kentucky Center for the Arts because it was an election year. And a couple years later, in 1986, uh, after having to move the trial to Lexington, um, just due to the mass amount of media coverage, Victor Taylor received a death sentence and George Wade received life in prison. Taylor, uh, according to one article I read, is on death row at the Kentucky State Penitentiary in Eddyville, Kentucky, which is in western Kentucky, sort of near Paducah. And George Wade is serving a life sentence at the Kentucky State Reformatory in LaGrange, Kentucky, which is just a little bit northeast of Louisville. Um, there was an article published uh, by a Louisville news station, WHS 11, in 2013 about the son of one of the murderers, George Wade. Uh, that article noted that the son, named George Wade Jr., was only two years old when his father um, took part in this awful crime. And as of that 2013 article, George Wade Jr. has been indicted for robbery and been a, quote, persistent felony offender dating back to 2001, end quote. Um, Emory Nelson, uh, the victim Scott Nelson's father, had this to say about it in that article. A family that could tolerate one of their children coming in laughing about having murdered two Trinity boys thinking that's funny and the parents didn't do anything or say anything about it. It tells you a lot about them. You can feel sorry for them and say they can't help it. They are poor and this, that, and the other, but that does not make an excuse, he said. It seems like things like that they keep repeating. If the family environment is not one that is conducive to getting them out of that way of thinking, then they are going to wind up the very same way, and I am not surprised at all. So that was what um, victim uh, Scott Nelson's dad had to say um, when WJS reported on George Wade, um, his son's criminal activity. And according to a Washington Times article, and I've never heard of this publication, so I can't necessarily vouch for it one way or another, but um, it says the average time between conviction and execution in Kentucky is 20 years, which is um, ab above the national average at the time. And Scott Nelson's mother, on the wait, had said, um, she's quoted as saying, it gets tough. After all these years, it doesn't seem to ease up. So I can't imagine what it's like to um, see someone convicted of the murder of your son and his friend and to have to live for decades uh, waiting for justice to finally be served. Um, Victor Taylor, of course, one of our, um, I'll say suspects, but he's been convicted. So one of our uh, murderers has since filed several appeals for a new trial. It's not really surprising because when you get the death penalty, that's like the first thing you do, it seems like. Um, but a circuit court judge issued an order at the time of the original trial that prevented any testing of DNA samples in his case until the testing method could be resolved. So I, I'm assuming that back in the, you know, 86, it was probably debated on which method was uh, most proper for testing the DNA. Um, but 
the prosecutor still tested one of the DNA slides or one of the slides with DNA in it, and the results were inconclusive. So Victor Taylor's uh, lawyers argued that both slides containing DNA should have been available for testing, but his argument was rejected. They um, basically said that Victor Taylor could not establish anything more than a, quote, a mere possibility as opposed to the reasonable probability required under the statute of exculpatory evidence, end quote. And that was Justice Mary Noble, and she wrote that um, that's why his appeal was denied. They could not um, find anything more than a mere possibility. It did not meet the threshold. So Kentucky's law actually allows um, the condemned inmates to request genetic testing of evidence in cases that occurred before DNA testing was available. So his attorneys sought the DNA tests, obviously, to determine uh, which person it was. Was it Taylor or was it George Wade who raped the student um, before the killings? And actually, during the original trial, George Wade recanted his statement that Victor Taylor was with him at the time of the murder. But the judges rejected his requests for... Um, I don't know if it was a new hearing or what exactly it was, but I know that they rejected his request and said that they didn't even need his statement to implicate Victor Taylor. Enough evidence existed even without Wade saying that Taylor had been there. So, of course, something like this makes you want more facts or it makes me want more facts. What exactly is the evidence that was enough to convict the two men um, even without one turning to the other? I wanted to know. Um, I wanted to know why the court ruled there was no reasonable probability. So I made it my business to try and see what they knew. So, of course, I did what I do, and I Googled. And I found a couple of official documents. Um, There was one filed in 2014 in the U.S. District Court, Eastern District of Kentucky at Lexington. And I am going to uh, read to you directly from it because it kind of paints a fuller picture of what happened that night. And uh, answers maybe some questions that you or I might have about details. So um, that particular document establishes the facts as such. In 1984, Taylor and co-defendant George Wade were charged in the Jefferson Circuit Court with the murder, kidnapping, robbery, and sodomy of two Trinity High School students, Richard Stevenson and Scott Nelson. They encountered the students on the evening of September 29, 1984, after the students became lost on the way to a football game. The prosecution presented a statement by Wade that he and Taylor kidnapped and robbed the two students. The boys had stopped at a fast food restaurant to ask for directions when they were approached by Taylor and Wade. Other witnesses testified that Victor Taylor had a gun and forced the victims into their car. The four then left in the victims' vehicle. In his statement, Wade said that he and Taylor robbed the boys and that he had removed both boys' trousers, bound their ankles, and gagged them in a Louisville alley. Wade indicated that Taylor killed the boys because he was afraid they would identify them. Wade stated that he waited on a nearby street while Taylor shot both boys in the head. Taylor and Wade were tried in Fayette County following a a change of venue. That's Lexington. Wade was called as a prosecution witness at Taylor's trial. However, Wade, citing his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, refused to testify because his conviction was pending on a direct appeal at the time. Due to the pending appeal, the trial court found that Wade was unavailable and admitted Wade's custodial statement made to the police that implicated Taylor. So in other words, they admitted the statement um, to the trial anyway. 
On April 30th, 1986, the jury convicted Taylor of two counts of murder, kidnapping and first-degree robbery, and one count of first-degree sodomy. Then on May 23rd, less than a month later, um, consistent with the jury's recommendation, Victor Taylor received a death sentence on each of the kidnapping and murder charges regarding each victim. So he received a, a total of four death sentences. Um, I think these might have been reduced. Um, and the, the document goes on to give uh, more details about witnesses. So in uh, with it says, with no consideration being given to Wade's statement, other evidence in the case was overwhelming regarding Victor Taylor's guilt. For instance, Taylor acknowledged the killings to at least three other people. So uh, just sidebar, I'm assuming that um, this evidence here is why um, one of our victim's parents had, had mentioned that um, they came home and talked about the murder and nobody said anything. They didn't even turn them in. Um, so I'm assuming that this is where that information came from. It says, Taylor acknowledged the killings to at least three other people, Beverly Shackelford, Eugene Taylor, and Jeffrey Brown. Taylor acknowledged to Brown that he killed the boys because George Wade mentioned his name while he was sodomizing one of the victims. An autopsy found sperm in the anus of one of the victims. Eugene Taylor witnessed Taylor, his cousin, Victor Taylor, admit to the killings, exchange firearms with his sister, and then divide the money stolen from the victims with George Wade. Additionally, two other individuals, it's Dino, Pace, and Cecil Pepper, witnessed the gunpoint abduction and identified Taylor and Wade as the abductors. Further, Pace and Pepper exited the parking lot of the fast food restaurant in their vehicle about the same time as Taylor, Wade, and the victims exiting the parking lot in the victim's car. Pace and Pepper actually followed them for a time while Taylor and Wade were riding in the backseat of the victim's car. So this document notes that Pepper had ample opportunity to observe Taylor while he and Taylor um, were at the counter of the fast food restaurant, and Pepper observed Taylor holding a gun as he entered the backseat of the victim's car. Then Victor Taylor's cousin Eugene Taylor also saw Victor and George Wade riding in the car with the victims prior to the murders. Additionally, live 357 Magnum rounds were found in Victor Taylor's home that matched the bullets at the crime scene. A firearms expert indicated that both victims were killed with the same gun. Numerous items of stolen property easily identified as belonging to the victims were in Taylor's possession or found in the homes of Taylor's mother and sister. Taylor gave several of the victims as items to others, like family, friends, his girlfriend, or offered items to others for sale. Uh, for example, Taylor offered to sell a Trinity High School class ring and a school jacket to Beverly Shackelford. Further, a witness to the abduction stated that Taylor was wearing a beige shirt. A beige shirt was found near the crime scene that contained hairs consistent with Taylor's head and pubic hair. In summary, there was more than ample evidence of Taylor's guilt without giving any consideration to George Wade's statement. So I guess George's statement was just like the bow to wrap it up, but they had everything they needed. There was a previous document, so the one that I read you, I believe, was filed in 2014. There was a previous document filed in 2005 that, uh, like, this dude, Victor Taylor, is seriously trying to get a new trial. Um, and has tried several times. Um, and this document says, The evidence that led the jury to return a guilty verdict against him is too voluminous to recount in full. What follows is some of the highlights. So, um... Uh, a lot of these things are similar to the document in 2014, like 
Dino Pace and Cecil Pepper witnessed the events that took place. They both identify Taylor as the man that kidnapped the boys. It even says uh, Taylor stood in line next to them as they were ordering food. And then it also mentions that uh, Cecil and Dino followed the car until it pulled off onto a side street. Um, Though it never really explains why they uh, followed them. And it says, although Taylor, Victor Taylor, was not picked out in a photo lineup, both witnesses, Cecil and Dino, identified Taylor at trial as the gunman and identified Wade in a lineup. Um, Taylor was never placed in a lineup. Of course, you can say what you will about a photo lineup. Um, We all know that uh, eyewitness um, evidence is some of the least reliable, but a lot of the other stuff seems to add up. Um, Jeffrey Brown, he is a jailhouse lawyer, it says, testified that Taylor told him what happened as part of an attempt by Taylor to obtain legal advice, and Taylor admitted to the shooting in this conversation with the lawyer, stating he had to do it after Wade said Taylor's name as he was sodomizing one of the boys. Which is interesting. I'm not really sure um, exactly how that works. I thought that there was some confidentiality on behalf of a of a lawyer and um someone obtaining legal advice but um i don't know clearly there's something i'm missing there but eugene taylor the one um previously mentioned uh, victor taylor's cousin saw taylor and wade again in a car with the boys on the night of the murder so right now we're up to three people who have been able to recognize him in the car with the boys and later that night it says eugene saw taylor and Wade with a Trinity High School gym bag at Taylor's mother's house. And it said Taylor and Wade were also in possession of a pair of gray tennis shoes, a pair of blue jeans, a Led Zeppelin cassette tape, a watch, a ring, and some firecrackers. Eugene further testified that he overheard Taylor ask his sister whether the news had said anything about two white boys being murdered. Then Eugene heard Taylor tell his sister that he shot the two boys. Eugene further testified that Taylor exchanged pistols and money with his sister, and then he divided the money with George Wade. Beverly Shackelford, the one of the uh, people um, previously mentioned who had known about the murder, had known Victor Taylor for more than 10 years, and she testified that Taylor tried to sell her a, a Trinity class ring and a school jacket on the morning after the murders. Neither the jacket nor the ring of one of the boys had been found... Um, at the crime scene. The following Monday, three days after the killings, Shackelford saw Taylor again. This time she overheard Taylor admit to killing the boys because, quote, it's a game. It's all about beating the system, end quote. Shackelford further testified that she overheard Taylor admit to the murders on two additional occasions. It's a game? It's all about beating the system? I mean, I doubt that's probably quoted accurately word for word, but Um, If even the semblance of it is what was said, it's kind of sick and kind of gives you a little bit of an insight into Victor Taylor's mind, though it definitely leaves us with more unanswered questions. There was also additional evidence at the crime scene where the boys' bodies were found. Remember the beige shirt I mentioned? They found a beige shirt under a crawl space of a nearby abandoned house with African-American hairs. Um, Both Victor and George Wade were African-American. That beige shirt was found along with one of the boys' blue jeans. Um, Pace, which is, I believe that's Dino, 
Dino Pace testified that Taylor was wearing a beige shirt at the restaurant when he, when Taylor and Wade kidnapped the boys. It was later determined that the shirt had some microscopic characteristics of Taylor's pubic hair and head hair. Additionally, the bullets that had traveled through the boys' heads were found at the crime scene, and we already talked about the firearms expert who said they were from the same gun. After an autopsy was performed, the coroner testified, as previously mentioned, that he found a sperm in the anus of one of the victims. But some additional information in this document that I didn't see in the later one was that uh, in the abduction car, I believe the Datsun, the police found the word fag written on the steering wheel. And in addition to finding various pieces of one of the boys' property, the police found firecrackers that matched those found at Taylor's mother's home and about which Eugene Taylor had testified. At various times, uh, it says Taylor occupied two homes, one of which was owned by his mother and then the other by his sister, which explains why he would have stuff at multiple houses. At his mother's house, they found several cassette tapes with the initials of one of the boys, 12 packages of firecrackers that matched those found in the boy's car, a Reader's Digest radio belonging to one of the boys, a pair of gray shoes belonging to one of the boys, a pair of beige suede shoes belonging to the other boy, and a silver clip with brown beads and white feathers which had hung from the sun visor of the car owned by one of the boys. At Taylor's other address, they found the, those four live um, 357 Magnum rounds that were manufactured by the same company that manufactured the bullets that were found shot through the boys' heads. Like the bullets at the crime scene, they were also hollow points. And they also found the boys' blue jeans, which were being worn by Taylor's brother-in-law, who testified that Taylor had recently given them to him. Those blue jeans had orange stitching on them, and the parents of one of the boys testified they belonged to their son. The police also searched the house of Taylor's girlfriend, Sherry Van Dyke, where they found a jacket that belonged to one of the boys. Miss Van Dyke testified that Taylor had given her the jacket. And that document goes on to state that from this evidence, no reasonable jury could have acquitted Taylor of murdering the two Trinity High School students, even if George Wade's statement were kept from its consideration. I pulled this information from at least 10 different sources. I like to try to corroborate facts. And uh, I think it's clear to see that this was a, a crime of opportunity for Victor Taylor and George Wade. Um, who's to know whether they went out that night intending to rob and or um, rape and murder people. Um, but it seems like all appeals have been unsuccessful thus far. I do know a little uh, side note here that there was a brand that was running an advertisement and they were um, working with Sears. I think Sears was um, distributing their clothes. And the point of the campaign um, for the ad was um, to give uh, hope to people or inmates that were on death row. And one of those inmates um, who was featured in the advertisement was one of the... Uh, you know, perpetrators of this crime. I can't remember now if it was uh, George Wade or Victor Taylor, but either way, it was very controversial, so um, Sears pulled the brand and no longer sold it. If you uh, Google information about Trinity murders, you might even find more that's out there. I'm always willing to hear your feedback. 
um, please comment on the blog or send me an email at crimehistorian at gmail.com if there's anything you want to add, if there's any stories you might want to hear me cover. Rate, review, subscribe if you'd like. And as always, I thank you for your time and I hope to see you soon.